your peers aren't paying taxes, why should you? Now, of course, that wasn't really true. Most people in America do pay their taxes. But um, there was this whole effort, a, a $4 billion accounting firm is a whole lot different than when you have these fly-by-night sort of shysters selling this stuff. The entire accounting firms were starting to get into this tax shelter business. And so Levin's first hearing in this area was to expose, you know, going behind that sentence, how does an accounting firm promote tax shelters? One of the most interesting aspects of the AML community in the United States is the number of detailed investigations that have occurred in the past 20 years that have looked at major events, which could best be described as scandals that allowed the movement of proceeds of illicit funds. In this edition of AML Conversations, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne sits down with Elise Bean. Elise Bean is the author of a new book called Financial Exposure, Carl Levin's Senate Investigations into Finance and Tax Abuse. This wide-ranging interview goes into extensive detail regarding a number of major cases that will be all too familiar to our community. They include HSBC, Riggs Bank, issues with private banking and Citibank, as well as some additional investigations regarding tax evasion and offshore banking. So, uh, Elise, this is a long, a long career you've had, that, um, and we've worked together off and on for, for many of these uh, investigations. I always thought it would be intriguing to see a, a, a document, a record of all that, and you've done that. You've done that with this, with this book. Uh, Elise Bean has written Financial Exposure, Carl Levin's Senate Investigations into Finance and Tax Abuse, and we'll tell you later on how to get a copy of the book. And the book is your very detailed review of uh, probably not all, but many of the investigations since you started um, at the committee. So let me start with this. I'm going to ask you about a bunch of different investigations. But since a lot of your investigations did center on the banking industry, and you've had a lot of experience interacting with them, what do you think of the banking industry? I think the banking industry is critical to this country. Um, They are responsible for taking care of all of our money, for investing it, for helping people with their financial future. And over the 30 years that I've been working in the anti-money laundering field, I've seen the banks climb a mountain. Uh, When I started off, people were bringing in duffel bags full of cash into banks. Very few questions were being asked. And since then, uh, the banks have really stepped up to the plate. They have, uh, in the areas of private banking, correspondent banking, uh, political figures, um, shell corporations, They have developed techniques and procedures to protect the American financial system, and I think they've done a pretty amazing job. That that doesn't mean that the problems are over. Uh, We hear about Danske Bank in uh, Estonia, Latvian banks. There's a lot of problems still going on, but still the difference between 30 years ago and now is profound, and the banking industry has really done a terrific job in terms of developing procedures and techniques to try to protect the financial system. For, for folks that are not congressional experts, give us um, sort of a thumbnail sketch of what the investigation committees did from this perspective. Obviously, you weren't a legislative committee, but you did make recommendations from time to time, or at least weighed in on them, and, and uh, we'll talk about some of that in a bit. Uh, but what was, and to the extent you can say what it, now, uh, how the, the committee structure changed or is it the same, but talk about, just on the Senate side, the investigations committee. Sure. So I worked on the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. We called it PSI. 
It started off as a committee run by Harry Truman when he was a senator during World War II, and what it did was look at waste, fraud, and abuse in the defense, defense industry, profiteering. Uh, he went around the country, found problems, exposed them, tried to come up with solutions. And he did it in such a bipartisan, common-sense way uh, that he really, they decided to make his subcommittee permanent, hence our strange name. Uh, back then, any committee that was uh, created to do an investigation then disappeared once the investigation was over. But they decided this one they were going to make permanent, and they would try to staff it with people who would become expert in doing investigations. So how do you decide, or when you were there, how did you decide what investigations to take on? Because obviously there's a lot of grist for the mill. I mean, there were probably a lot of areas where you would think, man, we should look at this or we should look at that. Generally, or maybe did it sort of depend on the issue, how did you folks decide what to tackle? So the jurisdiction of the subcommittee was extremely broad. We could look at just about anything, malfeasance, uh, you know, ethical problems, were laws being violated, corporate misconduct. So we get very broad jurisdiction. And what tends to happen is you do what the chairman or ranking member want to do. And Senator Levin, um, when he first went on the subcommittee, he was in the minority. So he wanted to pick a topic that was clearly within the jurisdiction of the subcommittee and had some bipartisan support, and he decided to do money laundering. And the reason he did that is there was a big scandal at the time about Raul Salinas, who was the brother of the president of Mexico back back then, Mm -hmm. and had been arrested and uh, turned out that he had a bunch of money in a number of different banks, including some U.S. banks. And uh, so he decided for his very first investigation that he would look at the Salina scandal, and then he broadened that into private banking. The reason he did that is when we started to look at it, it turned out that the Federal Reserve had identified private banking, and those are banks that cater to very wealthy people. You usually have to have a million dollars, five million dollars to open up an account in a private bank. And the Federal Reserve had become concerned that foreign officials were using it to launder Uh, corrupt funds, and they did a bunch of audits of 40 different uh, private banks, and we sort of went from there to look at private banking as a whole. It was interesting, because I do remember there was uh, sound practices for private banking that probably came out of all of that from the Fed. Yes. Uh, It was an area that um, people generally understood it was under wealth management, but at least in those days, and sadly I'm sure occasionally today, uh, the notion was a relationship manager didn't feel comfortable, didn't want to ask their particular customers in the private wealth space answers to tough questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Back then it was considered rude, and right. the person would leave and go to some other financial institution. And that's why you needed sort of all of the private banks to have the same requirements so that nobody would lose business by trying to be honest and careful. And this was all pre-9-11. So yes. what I remember from the environment there, there was... Back in 1999 was our first investigation. Right, which was, which was when uh, that same year is when Congress pulled uh, or Congress had hearings and the regulators pulled their Know Your Customer proposal because there had been such a backlash from the public was sort of orchestrated at that time by, uh, not Rand, but Ron Paul orchestrated it. But I do remember that in 98, there was a proposal which was fairly comprehensive. Uh, yeah, it was a basic proposal saying yeah. banks should know their customers. Exactly. And the backlash was huge, and the few voices, including your own, that was saying this is a reasonable you know, requirement. We ought to know who we're doing business with. Uh, there was just a big 
blast back in terms of privacy, and the, all the regulators who had stuck their necks out to do this regulation had to pull it. Yeah, it was it was weird. I, I think at the time, um, the new comptroller was a, a lawyer named Jerry Hawk who became the comptroller, and he was only there a few weeks and, and basically decided he couldn't take the heat. He just said, I'm pulling this, and pulled it during a hearing where the Fed was there and had no idea this was about to happen. So it was a strange <laughs> time. Um, and so you guys are looking at private banking at that time. What was the initial reaction, if you can re recall, from the, the trade press and the financial sector regarding your findings? Uh, so what we did is we developed four case histories mm -hmm. looking at Citibank Private Bank. And the reason we picked Citi is because at the time the Federal Reserve had done these 40 audits, they did a second round of four banks, and then they did a third round, and the only bank in the third round was Citibank Private Bank. So clearly the Fed thought Citi had a particular problem. We then got the documents from the Federal Reserve looking at their audits and the kind of work they did and saw the problems. We identified these four accounts, looked into them, and the facts were so outrageous and that we had at this hearing were so far out there from what people thought banks were doing that the press was on our side. And the press said, this is not the way banks are supposed to operate. And so we had a very positive reaction to the hearing. I'm happy to go into some details, but what happened after that is when we introduced legislation, nothing happened to it. Right. Uh, we had a second anti-money laundering investigation looking at correspondent banking, and then 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And because of 9-11, legislation that had been treated with a deafening silence all of a sudden became more important and was enacted into law. Right. I'll come back to 9-11, but let, I want to shift gears. Uh, you also covered se the several chapters on investigations on um, uh, uh, tax shelters and tax havens. And so I want to shift from, we'll go back to money loan and we'll go back to 9-11 and, and all that. I obviously agree with you that the environment changed for both the obvious and the legislative environment change as well. But um, you do cover... Uh, several investigations, and you know, it still seems to me we were at a, an event yesterday where the um, head of IRS CI spoke, and it was an anti money laundering event. But he talked about how in the U.S. in 2018, you are still not required as a bank to report possible tax evasion on a suspicious activity report. So the, it seems to be, I don't even call it the third rail, but there seems to be something verboten in the U.S. about going that far, which means there's a lot of companies and individuals that try to hide their money. Now, some will nicely call it tax avoidance, but <laughs> I think as we both know, in many cases, it's tax evasion. What did you find both in those shelters and in general in the offshore reviews that the committee did? Well, what we found is that whether you're doing tax evasion or you're doing money laundering, you're using the same offshore jurisdictions, the secrecy jurisdictions that keep information private. You're using the same financial institutions in, in those tax havens or secrecy jurisdictions. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of who's doing this stuff, who's helping you. Um, but there is, in U.S. law, tax law sort of segregated out mm -hmm. from all kinds of other criminal laws and, and money laundering laws. So there seems to be two separate tracks that people tend to go on. But that's not how Senator Levin felt about it. So some of the investigations he did, the earliest one he did was looking at how accounting firms, in particular KPMG, were helping um, uh, individuals and companies 
avoid the payment of tax. And one of and what we found out to our surprise is they actually had a cold call center staffed with people, and they were calling up business saying, your competitors aren't paying any taxes. Why should you? Here's a tax shelter you can use to get out of paying your taxes. Same case uh, being made to wealthy individuals. Your peers aren't paying taxes. Why should you? Now, of course, that wasn't really true. Most people in America do pay their taxes. But um, there was this whole effort, a $4 billion accounting firm is a whole lot different than when you have these fly-by-night sort of shysters selling this stuff. The entire accounting firms were starting to get into this tax shelter business. And so Levin's first hearing in this area was to expose, you know, going behind that sentence, how does an accounting firm promote tax shelters? What exactly happens? And we sort of went through that whole process at KPMG showing exactly what had happened. Later, we started to look at tax haven banks, the financial institutions that were helping individuals set up accounts and hide their money. Uh, we also did a whole series of looking at how um, tax professionals and lawyers were helping uh, set up complicated schemes to help individuals and corporations avoid the payment of tax. We did a whole series on that as well. So uh, how do you feel it's turned out in 2018? If you're coming back now, let's say you're retired now and obviously doing some some work with the Levin Center, which we'll talk about, but if you're coming back to that committee now, forget about the insanity that is the lack of partisanship going on, but let's just pretend it's it's bipartisan. If you come back now, is tax, are tax havens and offshore tax issues still a thing that you'd want to find out? Uh, where's been where's the progress and where's been the failures? I would. Um, I think there's been a lot of progress. And by the way, the subcommittee still operates in a totally bipartisan way. It's you know not covered because it doesn't fit in with a narrative about Congress. But actually, uh, PSIs continue to operate in a completely bipartisan way. But you know, here's some of the changes over time. Um, when you look at tax havens, um, there has been a lot of progress in terms of transparency. Mm-hmm. So you have a law like FATCA, which is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. I always think of FATCAT, but it's FATCA. And um, it requires financial institutions around the world to identify to the IRS any account opened by a U.S. person over a certain amount of money. It might be $100,000, $200,000, but for large accounts. And if they don't do that, the financial institution itself has to pay a 30% tax on its earnings from the U.S., and since they all have treasury, uh, treasuries or U.S. stocks and bonds, they would all be hit by that enormous tax. So we actually have over 400,000 financial institutions around the world that have now signed up to FATCA, and they are starting, they started in 2016, so it's pretty new, to do those disclosures. Even more than that, the rest of the world said, well, if our banks have to tell the U.S. banks, how about the U.S. banks telling about our nationals? And, in fact, the U.S. agreed to do that. And then the world set up its own FATCA-like system where they talk to each other between Switzerland and Germany and Liechtenstein and Italy, for example. They all now have a system. Went live in 2017, so again, very recent. Mm -hmm. But you have the kind of disclosure about foreign accounts that never existed before. There's lots of other things that happen, too, that are good news. Again, they're all you can get around those rules. There's still loopholes. There's problems. But public registries have started catch on for corporations where you get to know who's behind these shell companies, often used in tax evasion for tax evasion purposes. Now they're, for example, the UK has a public registry where you have to identify the beneficial owners 
behind your companies. And I'll just give you one other example, and that has to do with multinational corporations. They've been using tax havens like crazy to avoid the payment of tax, not only to the U.S., but to other countries around the world, playing us off each other, treating us all like chumps. Well, it turns out that nobody in the world, I found this mind-boggling, knows where a multinational does business earns money and pays taxes. No one knows that except for the company itself. No academic, no government. So the countries got together through the OECD. They had a, a certain project, and they have now re required large multinationals, they have to earn at least $850 million a year in revenues, and there aren't that many of them, but there are plenty that do it, and they have to file forms now with their home jurisdictions disclosing that basic information on a country-by-country -country basis where do you do business, where do you have employees, where do you make money, where do you pay taxes. And that just went to, into effect this year. The U.S. is getting those forms for the first time in 2018. Again, all very new. I think they're traceable to a lot of the investigations that Center 11 did. But there's been a lot of progress. Well, that, that's both uh, good to know and also I think um, one of the things that frustrates those of us that want to see the prosecution of financial crime in any form. Uh, the attacks on the IRS over the past, you name the number of years, right. is obviously um, totally unacceptable to those of us in this community. Very troubling uh, because... The lack the, of agents, the, they've cut agents, you know, there's so much... They've cut the audits. There's, yeah, um, yeah. They've cut their budget dramatically, their personnel dramatically, and of course for every dollar you give the IRS you get between four and seven dollars back, so it's just crazy that right. we're uh, allowing people to freeload on the system and you know most people in America pay their taxes sure. but some yep. people don't yep. and that's not fair. No I agree. Um, Alright let's go back to 9-11 and then I want to cover fairly extensively RIGS because RIGS is a, mo a bad model for a lot of things and I think it's an interesting uh, investigation that you did. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> going back your definition of fun is really... <laughs> I get it but... Um, so as we both said, 1999, 2000, sort of a waning of the focus on the Bank Secrecy Act. There's no question about it. There was actually some thought that there might be some reduction in requirements. You know, it was, uh, and it was st starting, I was starting to sense in the industry itself, senior management was saying, yeah, you know, maybe we can start putting off some resource allocation. And of course, those of us that do compliance for a living warned against that. Uh, then, of course, 9-11 happened, and we don't need to rehash, obviously, the horrific actions and post-actions and everything else. But from a legislative standpoint, your, your, your chapter is interesting because, like you, I live this as well from a legislative standpoint. And what I found uh, interesting, and I don't disagree with at all, is there was a number of bills that had been out there previously um, that hadn't gone anywhere, had no traction. Right. Now, suddenly, there's traction. Right. And as we both know... Uh, Congress in three weeks passed 300 pages, and um, I remember as if it were yesterday going up and um, you know because not because of myself but because of the ex excellent partnership that the banks had had with law enforcement. They said we want to work with you guys, and generally speaking, from '86 on, anytime there was uh, legislation regarding the Bank Secrecy Act, we generally supported it. You know, we we obviously uh, wanted to see. Uh, some opportunity to comment publicly if it was a reg, but all the predicate offenses never said no, never said no. So when this came, based on all that, we got invited up and they said, "This is going to pass with or without you. What do you want? We don't know if we can do it. What do you want?" 
So I said, for me, I want two things. Anybody's got a financial footprint, they should have an obligation of some kind. Mm-hmm. Cover everybody. And secondly, do a lot of this by reg. I mean, put it out, put it in the law, but have the actual requirements. Don't have Congress draft the requirements because, you know, by definition, sure. that's really not their role anyway. And so generally that's what happened. Um, I think sometimes, and, you know, you and I have been candid about this, I believe we have, we were strong partners throughout that debate. I mean, the banks had the idea of the 314, Section 314 and the Patriot, Patriot Act, which is a brilliant right. idea of allowing right. banks to share information without getting into trouble through various ways of getting sued by this one or that one or, you know, goodness knows what objections could have been raised. That was a real advance in the law. It was, and um, just being too close to it, having helped draft that, we actually wanted 14A and B to be a little different than what they were. 314A, without getting too geeky, but people that listen to this are kind of geeky, <laughs> so, so they'll understand the point. So 314A was always supposed to be the proverbial two-way street. It was not, hey, we got a name, Bank X, look it up for us. Right. That's what it turned out to be, sadly. Right. And I think... And, and, I want and to it get could on, be improved. Yeah, and B, obviously, is also a useful tool. What we're finding now with 314B... It's, it's sort of sad in a way, is that community banks will register to be part of that. And then they'll ask a big bank for help, and the big bank ignores them. Hmm. Uh, not all the time, but yeah. I hear it enough to yes. know that the bigger banks are like, we don't have time to respond to their B requests. So that's you don't want to make anything, man, it's, it's voluntary, so they don't have to do it. But that, to me, is the frustrating part. But um, you know, just, trying to, just trying to get your sense for the record, because, um, again, we, worked, we all worked on these things together that high level, I would argue that the banking industry was very supportive of the Patriot Act. Well, to be honest, I think there was a split. I think there were many people that were very supportive, and the legislation would not have happened if otherwise. But there were some groups, and I think in particular the Texas Bankers Association, mm-hmm. that worked very hard to stop, the, to stop any anti-money laundering legislation from going into the Patriot Act. So they didn't want so, – so I'm clear – they didn't want, it wasn't that, that they have issues with certain provisions. They didn't want anything. Right. And to be honest, the uh, 9-11 wasn't really a banking problem. No, no. When the terrorists, they used some of our banks. They got credit cards and they left credit card debt behind. They and they the used some the ATMs. They, yeah. But they had small amounts of money. Sure. I think it would have been extremely difficult to identify these people. So... We were actually taking advantage of the right. atmosphere to address a larger problem, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, that it wasn't that there were failings by banks in that, call, that no, led to 9-11. The 9-11 Commission right. uh, confirmed that. So some, you know, the Texas bankers like to point that out. Right. Um, but they, the Texas bankers, uh, the, those banks got a lot of money from Mexico. They didn't want to ask questions about where that money was coming from. They had very strategic members of Congress at the sure. time, the head of the banking committee just before there was yeah. Phil Graham. Yeah, sure. Over in the House, they had Dick Armey. They That's had right. Tom DeLay. Yeah, yeah. So the Texas bankers had a very big impact mm-hmm. on on trying to stop the legislation. But in the end, they weren't able to do it. And I write about how in the book, after we had 9-11, then we had an anthrax scare mm-hmm. in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And that actually made people so mad that they decided, you know, we got to go all out. We have to fight it. The House ended up passing an anti-money laundering mm-hmm. bill. There was already one that had passed the Senate, and so they decided they were going to include it as Title III of the Patriot Act. 
Yeah, what was interesting is the Texas bankers did not engage me at all. This is, this is obviously not about me, but at the ABA, I was a point person on this stuff. Right. I had heard sort of rumblings what they were doing, but even they decided they weren't going to reach out to the national trades on this. And they were, and they were very quiet about yeah, it. Exactly. They didn't see them in the press. Yeah, exactly. Um, they did take a public stance. It was no. all behind the scenes, but they happened to have very strategic people that yep. could help them. Yep. One thing that happened is, I don't know if you remember, but the Senate flipped at the time, just before 9-11 happened. Uh, Senator Jeffords went from being a Republican to an Independent, right. and all of a sudden the Democrats were in charge, and mm -hmm. Senator Sarbanes, who had been a co-sponsor of some of that anti-money laundering legislation, was suddenly in charge of the Banking Committee instead of Phil Graham. Right. And that made a big difference. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair point. Um, so... Right around, right after that, so the, so Patriot Act passed. The regulations start coming out. You know, a, after that, there was the CIP. The and, and I should say, one of the big things that happened is Senator Sarbanes is the one that said we're going to have an anti-money laundering program requirement for ev everybody, right. not just the banks. Right. And I think one of the important things that happened in that Patriot Act is we before we made the banks do everything, and the banks can't do everything. Right. You have to have partners who have accounts at those banks also to know their customers and to not to actively refrain from doing business with people who have suspicious activity involved. So that, you know, saying to securities firms and mutual funds and um, jewelry stores and all the rest of them, you also have to know your customers, I think was a one of the most important things we did. Uh, in the Patriot Act, and that came from Senator Sarbanes. Yeah, and, and like I said, we had we had pushed that notion with their, the House staff. I do remember talking to them about covering everybody, and uh, obviously when the when the Senate flipped, we had similar meetings. And, and it wasn't misery loves company. It was to your point, banks can't do everything. You can't. You, you know? simply can't. You have to have everybody who's a, a recipient of a lot of cash to be careful right. about who's giving them the cash and for what purpose. Yeah, and I, I've often said, um, I know you've, you've uh, guest lectured in college classes, and I've, I'm teaching a class. I've often said, if I could get some student to research whether or not had the KYC regulations gone into play, mm. what impact, if any, would that have had on terrorist financing detection? You know, it might not have had any, but I would argue I there's a lot more information. So um, that that always sort of s stuck stuck with me, given, as we said, many of us, we're not so much embracing that regulation, but saying, hey, it's out there, let's comment on it, get it into play, and then people just went nuts, and yeah. so this obviously changed everything. So the shift, I want to talk about Riggs Bank, and, and the premise being this, when I teach about uh, reputation risk, which... I'll admit, doesn't always hurt a bank. Sometimes the banks get these fines, and let's face it, or anybody, securities firm, whatever, and they really don't take a public hit. It's not always right, the case, but, right. you know, I think... It varies. It does vary. If you have a Senate hearing, they take more of it. Right. So, the, <laughs> so Riggs Bank is sort of the poster child for reputation risk because, A, they're not around anymore. Yeah. Right? And, B, I think, I, I can say it, um, um, the what I understood to be the arrogance of senior management of that institution made it a lot easier for the fines and penalties and, and what ended up happening. But I know we, we could spend hours talking about rigs, but just give us a, a quick snapshot of the major problems in rigs. And then I'm very interested in a, and I strongly supported what you guys did when you pushed that cooling off legislation after that. So that, that was an example of, of an investigative committee 
coming up with some findings and then making a recommendation. I'm sure there are other other examples and turning into something yeah. that anybody would think is positive in terms of uh, stability and anti-corruptive activity. But uh, rigs, sure. you have a whole chapter on. There's a lot of really good stuff in here, but sort of distill it some for us. Some of the us. highlights. Yeah. Um, so Senator Levin, after we passed the Patriot Act. Um, much stronger law, but of course a strong law doesn't mean anything unless it's actually being enforced. So he was looking for an opportunity to examine the enforcement of the Patriot Act, the new provisions in there that, for example, made foreign corruption a predicate offense that required banks to know when they're, to know their customers when they opened accounts for foreign officials, etc. We saw an article written by a journalist about Equatorial Guinea having um, a, sec- a supposed secret account at Riggs Bank. Um, and we decided to take a look. It, it had happened that somebody on our staff had interviewed uh, a banker at Riggs Bank, and his sort of um, anti-corruption uh, pinger started pinging, saying, oh, my goodness, who is this banker and what is he up to? turned out he was the banker for Equatorial Guinea. With those two factors in place, we proposed to the senators to take a look. They agreed. Uh, Riggs was a $4 billion bank, not very big by uh, American standards, but it was known for... Uh, providing services to embassies and to foreign officials. Um, we took a look at the Equatorial Guinea account. We found out that they turned out to be their largest single customer. They had between 400 and $700 million at any one time at the bank. Um, they had an account for the country itself. Uh, the country is an oil-producing country, and a lot of American oil companies legitimately do business there. And they told the oil companies, well, put your money in our account at Riggs. So they had a lot of money there. One of the things we found out is millions of dollars were (laughs) leaving that account going to strange shell companies in other countries. We traced about $34 million. It just went out in these unexplained wire transfers. Then we started looking even more closely, and we found out that Riggs had many accounts, 60 accounts opened, Uh, for um, officials there. So the president had an account, his wife had an account, all kinds of relatives. Uh, The bank had created an offshore entity for the president called Otung. Uh, Then we started finding evidence of large cash deposits. Uh, This is when I was talking about duffel bags full of cash. Actually, on two different occasions, duffel bags, turns out it was $3 million in cash, was brought into uh, Riggs Bank, and they deposited that money in the Otong account or in the wife's account. Uh, you're wondering where that money came from. The the bank didn't ask. They just deposited it. Then they later said, oh, he sold a house somewhere. And we think this was house money, you know, from the house sale, but all very strange. Um, as we're looking along, then we get whispers about another account involving Augusto Pinochet, who was the former um, head of Chile. And we We ended up looking at those accounts. They didn't have nearly the amount of money that equatorial accounts had. They had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, The Pinochet accounts only had about $8 million. Um, But we decided to take a look anyway, and we found uh, there were a lot of problems with those accounts as well. And one of the things the banks had told us is, you're looking at us unfairly, there's nothing to see here, leave us alone. As we're starting to look more carefully at the Equatorial Guinea stuff, their private banker for Africa, a guy named Simon Carreri, all of a sudden ups and leaves the country. And, in fact, we start to find all kinds of funny business with his personal accounts, his wife's accounts. He ends up going to jail, as did his wife. Um, and then all of a sudden their explanation is, well, we had one bad apple. Right. You know, it was this one guy. He caused the problems. 
Well, the Pinochet accounts were done by people who dealt with Latin America, had nothing to do with Africa, and yet we found problems over there as well. Um, just to give you one example, they um, created offshore accounts for him as well. Uh, when he was arrested in, in London and being held there for a time and, and was subject to a court order to freeze his assets, Riggs nevertheless transferred one, over a million dollars, it was $1.6 million from an account to London to the offshore accounts in the U.S. Uh, they ended up sending him cashier's checks, 38 cashier's checks, um, $50,000 apiece. They would send him the checks to him in Chile. They would say... It was a bank check, so nobody knew he had an account that it came from, but it was actually financed by his accounts. So they were helping him hide his money in a very active way. All right. Hold that thought. We're going to come back, and when we do, I want to ask you, where were the regulators? And then um, your thoughts regarding one particular examiner in charge. So we'll, we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other Anti-Money Laundering and Bank Secrecy Act-related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Rightsource website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. Okay, we're back. Um, you just outlined all the various troublesome, to say the least, issues at Riggs Bank in the early 2000s that the committee was looking at. So the question I have is, well, where were the regulators? And we are going to talk about the legislation that you were able to push push later that sort of was the outcome of this. But from your investigations, where were the regulators when all this was going on in terms of overseeing you know, the, different sure. proce- the process and how the money tra- the transfers were going on? What were they doing? Well, it turns out there was kind of a split. There were the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys were the anti-money laundering examiners. They had identified these problems all along the way. They had written them up. They had said to the examiner-in-chief, we ought to do something about this. Um, So they really did a very good job of identifying the problems. They had found the Pinochet accounts. They had found the cashier's checks. But the examiner in charge was a guy named Ashley Lee, and he just did not act on those issues. He said, I'm looking at safety and soundness. The bank is very profitable. You know, they're responding to fixing these little problems. And the examiner's like, well, no, they're really not fixing these problems. They don't have an active anti-money laundering program. Um, We found out that the examiner in charge, he he had been with um, the OCC for 30 years and had looked at a bunch of different banks. He looked at Riggs just the last three, four, five years. And he had actually ordered the Pinochet, when they found the Pinochet stuff, he ordered that to be um, stored in hard copy, but never mentioned it in the electronic records, so that unless you knew about it, it did not appear in the bank's electronic anti-money laundering issues. Very, very interesting. So finally he decides to retire. He retires from the OCC, and a couple days later, he takes a senior position with Riggs Bank. Right. Chief risk officer, shocking. right? Was a chief risk Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, quite a big surprise. So where were the regulators? They were there and not there. Mm-hmm. So that was very troubling to us. When he did that with the hard copy and you found that out, did you ask anybody at the OCC why that happened? We asked all of them. Okay. And the uh, uh, anti-money laundering examiner said it was done at his request, mm. to Ashley Lee's request. But 
did he, with his request, explain to that examiner why, or he just said, I want this done, end of story, that person didn't think the need to ask, why do you want me to do this? The bank exam, the anti-money laundering bank examiners were quite troubled yeah, sure. by the decision that he made, but they, they didn't buck him, they just mm-hmm. stored it. All right, so he, he shows up at Riggs Bank as chief risk officer, then what do you do? Well, he tried to explain why he was doing a good job uh, at the OCC and he was doing a good job at the bank helping them comply with the law, but we just didn't see it that way. So one of the things that happened as a result of the investigation is there was a Levin Coleman, because Senator Norm Coleman was our um, Republican counterpart at the time, so we had a Levin Coleman legislation that was enacted into law to require a one-year cooling-off period before a senior bank examiner could take a job at a financial institution that he'd been supervising. So they could go to another institution, yes. just not one that they supervise. Right. Any pushback on that when you guys, when you guys moved There was it? a little bit of pushback from the regulatory agencies, but then we said, do you really want to hire people who right. want to be working for the banks that they're supervising? And they said, you're right. No, we don't want to do that. And so it, it very easily was enacted into law. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of pushback, so that's interesting. Uh, let's, um, let's jump ahead. HSBC, another bank that has had massive problems. I think recently their order was, was released from uh, several years ago. But HSBC, as I think everybody knows, uh, recent times has hired high-level government officials like Jennifer Shasky Calvary, FinCEN director works there, Stuart Levy had worked there, Bob Werner had worked there, sort of all, I think most of it was post you folks looking at the bank, but what were the key issues that you found in the HSBC investigations? Well, what we had looked at earlier um, in the correspondent banking field is we said, you know, U.S. banks had the attitude that if a bank was licensed, properly licensed, They could take them on as a client, and one bank was just the same as another. And what we showed in that correspondent banking investigation is there are different banks, and different banks have different levels of risk. An offshore bank is not the same as a large established bank. And that was eventually accepted by the banking industry, and as I mentioned earlier, they did an enormous about-face, and and now they do due diligence for all of their foreign banks before opening accounts for them. So offshore banks, banks in high-risk jurisdictions, they do a lot more due diligence. They may or may not take them on. And now nobody takes on a shell bank because we were able to bar those accounts from U.S. uh, banking industry. What we looked at in HSBC was sort of an equivalent problem with affiliates. So HSBC is an enormous bank, 89 million customers at the time, 300,000 employees. Uh, They were in 80 different countries. And they were a very active bank in terms of working with their affiliates. They opened up a U.S. branch, not so much for U.S. customers, although they had 4 million of them, but their real reason was they wanted to provide a U.S. platform for all of their other affiliates around the world. And they were doing, at the time, 600,000 wire transfers, uh, I think it was, uh, per week. It was back in 2008, so that was a while ago. And two-thirds of those were from their affiliates. And they had affiliates in places like um, Mexico, Pakistan, high-risk countries that uh, had due diligence problems. And what we really dug into was the Mexico example. And our whole point was not all affiliates are the same. An affiliate in the U.K. is different from an affiliate in Mexico. You need to do a due diligence review, and you have to make sure that even your affiliates meet your anti-money laundering program requirements. 
So what we found in HSBC is the Mexican bank that they had purchased um, back in 2002 had no anti-money laundering <coughs> program. And despite intensive efforts by the bank itself from their headquarters, and we were able to get documentation showing that for seven years <laughs> the people in the headquarters were trying to improve the anti-money laundering performance of Mexico, they were unsuccessful. And time after time they saw high-risk uh, very bad behavior. They would order accounts from the headquarters to be closed. They would not be closed. Uh, it was how, a real mess. How does mess. that happen? You order it to be closed and it doesn't get closed. How does that happen? So in HSBC, the headquarters anti-money laundering division had no authority to close an account. After our investigation, guess what? They got that authority and now the headquarters can order an account closed in any affiliate. But at the time, mm -hmm. the affiliates themselves could make the final decision. And that caused a lot of problems sure. because uh, weak standards, weak procedures uh, in some countries. So it turns out HSBC was doing a lot of business with uh, drug money. They admitted it later, $800 million that they admitted to. Um, that was drug money going from uh, Mexico uh, to uh, the United States branch. Uh, in fact, they were getting more money from their Mexican affiliate, even though it wasn't that large a bank in Mexico. But they were getting enormous amounts of cash from Mexico. They were warned by law enforcement that it probably included drug money, and yet nothing happened until we did our investigation, made all of this public, and HSBC um, went on a big reform effort. They closed over 300 uh, correspondent accounts for banks around the world. For example, they had accounts for 30 banks in Sudan. Come on. Wow. There's not 30 banks in Sudan that should have accounts in the United States. Uh, a lot of things like that. They upped their compliance personnel by 10 times larger. They had 150 people in the United States for the fifth largest bank in the world with all kinds of cash from all kinds of high-risk places. Now they have 1,500 people or even more. Uh, so they, they responded to that, but it, it, it was a battle. We're here with with Elise Bean. She's written Financial Exposure, Carl Levin's Senate Investigations into Finance and Tax Abuse. A, a few final thoughts I wanted to get from you. Uh, one, just your sense of, um, you, you talked about the bipartisanship of the committee, and you say the committee to this day is also still, from your perspective, still bipartisan. Um, I enjoyed the the intros of your book when you looked at the McCarthy hearings and some of the other, the history was really fascinating. Um, can that committee still stay bipartisan given the chaos that we see today? Are you you're sort of confident? Is Susan Collins, is she the uh, lead? No, now it's it Portman. Now? It's Portman. Senator Portman okay. from Ohio yeah. Talk and a Senator Harper from Delaware. Okay. Yes, they can still be bipartisan okay. and they are being bipartisan. And the re there are two reasons. Um, first of all, in addition to having Truman, who was, who was such a terrific person who started the subcommittee, we also had McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, as our subcommittee chair for two years, which was our worst period when we really nosedived in, in terms of reputation. But because of McCarthy, we changed the subcommittee rules. And so the subcommittee rules require each side to approve the other side's new investigations. They require everybody to have full access to all the documents and information that's collected by the subcommittee. Which isn't happening in some of the other committees, as right, we know. So, right, yeah, right. Okay. So the rules are one reason. Right. A second reason is this tradition. And sort of McCarthy's been burned into the consciousness of everybody on that subcommittee, and they don't want to be McCarthy, and they don't want to be abusive. 
And so there are very strong traditions of sharing information and acting together. So we do joint document requests, mm -hmm. joint witness reviews. Subpoenas are unilateral by the chairman, but in the 15 years I was there, we always did it jointly with our minority or majority. Sometimes we were in the minority and the majority helped us out. So there's those very strong traditions that I think are still there and very, um, very active. So it seems to me that those traditions remain active because there's some formality around them, which is yes. which is good. We're recording this the day that there's been additional pipe bombs found uh, in New York and in Delaware. And one of the things that struck me in terms of Congress is uh, uh, Senator Schumer and uh, ranking minority member uh, Pelosi issued a joint statement. Ten years ago, that would have gone both sides would have issued a statement together. So it's sort of sad where uh, that sort of activity is in Congress, but it is good to know that a committee that's so important that does investigations has an infrastructure that should, even if they were maybe reluctant, force bipartisanship. Right? And I have some better news for you. Um, one of the things that the Levin Center, so the Levin Center at Wayne Law, it's, it's established at Wayne Law, um, Law school, Wayne State University Law School in Detroit, which is Senator Levin's hometown. He moved back. And you're, and you're working. For, you're doing some work for them. I am co-director yeah. of their Washington office, and I help run their training programs. And twice a year, along with uh, the Project on Government o on Oversight and the Luger Center, we do trainings for um, congressional staffers, and we take people from the House and the Senate, right. Democrats or Republicans, put them in a room for two days. They're put on bipartisan, bicameral teams. We give them a couple fake scandals, and then we run them through their legislative pro the investigative process to try to help them nice. up their game. Right, right. Um, we have we've trained about over 165 staffers in the last couple years, and there is tremendous enthusiasm for doing things on a bipartisan basis. Why? Lots of reasons. First of all, when you investigate with somebody whose opinions are different from your own. Mm -hmm. Uh, you notice more things. Uh, you get a wider context. If you can come to agreement with people you disagree with, you probably have more thorough, thoughtful, accurate facts. And you also get immediate credibility when you do something that's bipartisan. Right. It's also harder when you're investigating people if you have a bipartisan uh, information request than if it's only come from one side or the other. You know, the banks all the time, if one side asks for something, banks say, a partisan investigation or anybody we investigated took that position. Right. But if it was bipartisan, very hard for them to make that argument, very hard for them to ignore the request. So there are a lot of practical uh, reasons uh, for being bipartisan. And another one is congressional staffers don't like to come to work in combat mode. They would like to have a more pleasant work environment. And what we say is you don't have to agree on things ideological, but you should be civil to each other. You want to have a work environment where you're all comfortable and you can talk to each other, even if you don't reach agreement on you know, particular things. What we should reach agreement on is what happened, the facts. And if you can reach agreement, a consensus on what happened, that alone in this complicated world okay. provides a platform for then thinking about reforms and what you should do about it. Well, I think there should be more marketing of your center because I think that is exactly what we need, especially now. So hopefully some folks that 
or taking a listen to what we're talking about today. We'll also go online and look at uh, information, which we'll give them at the end of this on how to learn more about the center. I think that's... Uh, and Luger must be Senator Luger. So Senator they, they, Luger, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And we've been telling, uh, trying to indicate to the Democrats, should they take over the House, you know, you can follow the model that have been used by some turning congressional investigations into a partisan food right. fight. Right. But that just lowers the public's opinion of mm-hmm. Congress further. You don't get anywhere. You don't get reforms. A better way to go is the Levin model, what I call the gold standard of using bipartisan investigations. And that's really what I hope Democrats will do. I know it's hard to be gracious when you've been in the minority and then you get in the majority, but, you know, they can go back in the minority again. So it is important to set up uh, ways that both the majority and minority can work together. So I appreciate you sitting down. And as I said, we'll give more information on how to get the book, also about the center. One more topic I'd like you to cover as we as we finish this. Uh, you've been pretty vocal about the beneficial ownership issue, and obviously there's some coverage in the book. You've talked about it. At, I've seen you talk about it at panels and conferences. As you know, we have a new rule in in the U.S. It's been in place since May. Banks are I don't say they're scrambling. They're working on it. You know, it, most of them are implementing. What I'm hearing now is that the examiners are starting to take a look. And while they're uh, not adverse to criticizing the banks formally at this point, they're sort of working with the banks to make sure they get it right. Um, Give me your biggest concerns, if any, about that rule or what else you wanted to see. And we're all well aware that it doesn't fit within some of the international standards. We're also pretty well aware that until you get Delaware and Nevada to do more information gathering, what the banks do is never going to be complete, in my opinion. What's your biggest problem, if that's the right word, with the uh, CDD rule? Well, you know, over 30 years, I have seen the banks, as I put it, climb this mountain. And they have climbed the mountain in terms of, all right, when we have a legal entity, a trust or corporation opening an account, we're going to find out who's behind that entity. And banks, when I started, weren't really finding that out. But by the time I left, 9 out of 10 or even 95 out of 100 times, the bank did do the work that was necessary to find out who their client really was. And I thought it was one of the most important improvements that the banking industry had done and set a really terrific standard for the rest of the financial industry. This CDD rule, which took four years to develop, did not build on what the bank's have actually been doing. Instead, it created a very weak rule. I think it's the weakest rule on beneficial ownership uh, in the world, and I think it makes a mockery of the term. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you two examples. If you have a trust open an account, um, if the trust owns 100% of the assets in the account, the CDD rule says you can name the trustee as the beneficial owner of the trust. Well, that's the exact opposite of the meaning. A trustee is not the beneficial owner in most cases. They're a third party. They're not the owner. So how can you say that they're the beneficial owner? Second example, if you have a shell corporation uh, and nobody owns at least 25% of the stock, so let's say you have six people that are the uh, owners of that corporation, you then no longer have to identify any of the owners and you can identify an officer of the corporation as the beneficial owner. You can name the president, uh, even if there's somebody out 
Let's suppose that somebody in the British Virgin Islands who is the president of that shell company. You're allowed to identify them as the beneficial owner of that corporation. That makes no sense. That person out in BVI is not the owner of that corporation, and yet the rule allows that to happen. Yeah, I, so I, I have real problems yeah, with that rule. I know you know this, and it's different than being required, so I get the point. But many banks are going below the 25%. Not all, but many are. But so, as you Which know, I think is terrific yeah. because the FATCA but, rule yeah, requires, right. and the international thing uses a 10% level, which I think is also terrific. But even if you have, I have never worried about who actually owns the shares because the bad guys never own the shares. Mm-hmm. They simply have somebody else own it. Um, a nominal owner, and then they secretly exercise control. We saw that back in 1999 when we looked at the Salinas account. He was so worried that he was putting millions of dollars into an account owned by a shell company called Troca that had no ownership linked to him that he ended up getting a uh, letter from the bank saying, whatever you want us to do with Troca, we will do, because he had no actual ownership. So I'm not worried about the ownership of 10%, 25%. What I care about is the control Uh, prong of the definition. And here they're saying if you're a trustee or if you're an officer, you exercise sufficient control that we're going to call you the beneficial owner. And I think that corrupts the entire uh, meaning of the term of beneficial owner. We've had 40 years. It's become a term of art internationally. And our rule is just um, outrageous and uh, it needs to be strengthened. Well, but I'll just tell you what I really think. No, I, I, that's that's why you're here. Uh, Elise Bean, the author of Financial Exposure, Carl Levin's Senate Investigations into Finance and Tax Abuse. As I've said in, in my review of the book, um, if you're doing training, if you're trying to understand sort of uh, case studies regarding what to look for with uh, money laundering prevention uh, detection issues, you couldn't ask for a better source. And obviously... Very well documented, almost kind of scary, some of the stuff in there. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the descriptions are, it's clear you kept a lot of records. Well, actually, I took this all from the public record. And in each case, for each chapter, I refer to the report, because we wrote these enormous detailed reports. And I was really reducing those reports down to 20 pages versus the 100 or 300 pages that they were. I'm very glad that you find it useful. I tried to write it in a conversational way mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't be too technical and yet would provide sufficient information for people to really understand what the problems were. As I've always said, it's always important to talk to people that you don't completely agree with, And uh, but I've always respected your knowledge of the, of the space. And I no feel question. the same with you, John. You've taught um, me a lot over the years. It's It's been a, it's been great, and I'm, I'm, I'm more interested now, it seems, in the Levin Center. I really... I wasn't completely sure what it did. I must admit that's mm-hmm. on me, not on sure. you, because I'm sure well, you explained it to me. Well, it's a very small, you yeah. know, organization. It's small, but what you're doing is so important. I mean, I, I saw the note the other day from uh, uh, Senator Day O'Connor, who uh, sadly is getting the early stages dementia, and she wrote about she can no longer be proactive in her space about teaching people civics, right. which was a uh, you know obviously something important to her. Civics, civility. Uh, bipartisanship. We so need that today. If you want good government, you need good oversight. End of story. Right. What does it mean to have good oversight? The Levin book tries to talk about that. It's not only the quality of the investigation that you do. Do you talk to the right people? It's not just whether you're, you have credibility with third parties, but that bipartisanship, the involving of the other side, reaching agreement, consensus with people that you disagree with, 
that's a good government and good oversight needs to be able to have reach that consensus so that you can have a platform to use to then think about what you should do about it. So we're, we're very passionate that bipartisan inquiries are the most important way to go. Uh, on the website for the center, do you post papers and articles as we well? We do. Yeah, excellent. We do. Okay, we'll make that available. Too. And we even have online videos for the hmm. training that we do uh, because not every it's only open to congressional staff, mm-hmm. but if people want to see what we're saying to people, we have uh, over a dozen five-minute to ten-minute videos where you can see on different topics, you know, how to do an effective document request, how to mm-hmm. interview witnesses, how to build bipartisanship into your own investigation. So our tips are right online, and uh, anybody can take a look at them. Well, at least Bean, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, for the book. Um, as I said before, there's a lot of good information in there. It can be used as a historical review, but also as a training tool. I've always found your folks, uh, when you did your investigations, many times when we were doing AML training, you would see excerpts from the reports up on PowerPoint slides because we, we found them extremely valuable. So. Thank you for that, and uh, thank you for what you're doing with the Levin Center and for sitting down with me today. And, and I appreciate all of that, and I have to say that Center Levin is really the reason for such um, fair-minded, bipartisan investigations because it was his leadership that uh, produced those results. Great. Thanks, Elise. So there was a lot to unpack there. If you'd like to get a copy of Elise's book, it is, again, called Elise Bean, Elise J. Bean, Financial Exposure, Carl Levin's Senate Investigations into Finance, and tax abuse. You can get it on Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. The uh, publisher is Palgrave McMillan. Also, uh, Elise mentioned a little bit toward the end, which I really wanted to ask her more questions about that, was the work that she is doing uh, with the Levin Center at Wayne Law in Detroit. I think it's uh, so needed in today's environment that we uh, work on bipartisanship and issues related to that. And uh, it sounds like Levin Center is doing a lot of excellent work. There's a website that you can go to to get information about the, the Levin Center. As uh, Lise mentioned, there are some uh, videos on there and some other information that I think would be useful, frankly, in our day-to-day lives, not just uh, dealing with legislative and, and regulatory issues. Um, what I found is the Senate Permanent Investigations Committee reports have been excellent training tools for those of us that need to uh, continue to find case studies and examples where uh, money laundering and related crimes occur. So um, if you do get a chance, uh, take a look at the book. I'll go back and read some of the reports. Uh, Those are all still available, of course. And as Elise mentioned, she feels pretty comfortable and confident that the current Senate Permanent Investigation Subcommittee is also acting in a bipartisan way, which is always good news. Uh, especially, again, now in these chaotic times. I will add, um, we are posting this right before the midterm elections in uh, the United States. And sadly, uh, when we were working on finalizing and finishing this up, we've had some terrible activities um, in the United States. We've had the pipe bombs uh, sent to uh, uh, Democratic office holders and those in the media. We've also had the horrific shootings in Pittsburgh. There's a lot of horrible things going on in the United States and sadly around the world. So it's really important that we uh, continue with the message of trying to work together, whether it's on issues as seemingly benign as legislative issues or much more important things that deal with uh, 
day-to-day -day existence. Um, again, I, I think it's important that everybody in the U.S. vote on Tuesday, and um, hopefully the outcome will result in people working together and going forward. That's important in our community, the AML community, and we don't need to be told about that. Private-public partnerships have been happening for 30 years, and uh, we don't always agree. Working with our regulatory partners, we don't always agree, but we work together, and that's something we think broader society should be doing. So thanks for listening. This is John Byrne from AML Conversations, and we will see you next time.